0: So while you're settling in today, I'm going to let you know a little bit about this shirt that I'm wearing. I've waited all month to be able to wear this shirt. I, it was a gift from my daughter Kirsten and her husband Michael and my granddaughter Willow for my birthday. Today, in part, we're going to talk about transformation. And the reason I waited to wear this shirt was when they bought it, it was all black, and then they went through a lengthy process of tie dyeing it to get to this color. And the shirt has been transformed. I love the shirt. But it's also a great example for what God's talking about, us being transformed and being a new creation, that we're just simply not the same as we used to be. If you got your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter. We're in the fourth chapter. We've got this one and one more to go. And this one for Peter is is a a pretty heavy chapter. He hits us pretty hard in the verses we're going to look at today. We're going to work our way quickly through almost the entire chapter. So I want to jump in, and I, I want you to ask yourself, A very, very serious question. And this question is going to go throughout this whole message. You've got exactly one life to decide the answer to this question. One lifetime. And the decision that you reach is going to be with you for an eternity. Are you going to live your life to be like Jesus? Or are you going to live your life to just simply be like you? What Peter is talking about today is what is it to be like Jesus? What is it to be transformed, to be a new creation? What does the world want us to do, but what does Jesus want us to do? And we have to come to terms with that. So my question is, who are you going to be? Are you going to be like Jesus? Or are you going to be more and more just like yourself? Verse four or Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh... Has ceased from sin. This doesn't mean that if you've faced a difficulty in your life, you're not going to sin anymore. That doesn't isn't what it means at all. But this part I want you to grab onto is: arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Start thinking like Jesus. If you want to be different, if you want to be more like Jesus, start thinking more like Jesus. Verse two. So as to the, uh, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter jumps right in and says, who are you going to be? Are you going to live for the things that you want in your most base, base self, or are you going to choose to live like Jesus? Who are you going to be? Verse three, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Now, let's park here for a moment. That's quite a string of words. It's quite a, quite a group of hobbies or pastimes. It, it would seem to make sense, it would be obvious, you would think, that as Christians, we would live and act in a way that is different from the non-believing world. Doesn't it? I mean, we've got God's word. We've got the testimony of the life of Jesus. We've got people who have lived for 2,000 years who have been models and examples of us for what the Christian life is. And, and we've got a whole lot of examples of what the Christian life is not. It would make sense that as Christians who believe in Jesus, we would live in a way that's different than the non-believing world around us. But the fact is, and, and those folks who don't believe in Jesus would say it isn't many of us. They would say it is most of us who are no different as a Christian than people who don't claim to believe in Jesus at all. See, what Peter's talking about is our pre-transformation self, our old creation before being made a new creation in Jesus. the heart of the gospel, Jesus came that we would be made new, that we would be a new creation. Because of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, we would be transformed and we would become a new person. But you know what? The the Christian church in America is really bad at preaching that message. Preachers don't really get at it very often. And so what's happened is is a whole lot of other beliefs and theologies and ways of thinking have have gotten into the church. And, and, And we're bad at preaching it and teaching it and encouraging it and discipling it, even though it is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus came that we would be made whole. So why are we bad at it? Why why does the church not address it? Well, because it's offensive. People don't like to hear it. What we like to hear is that we're good enough just the way we are. Well, you know what? God loves you just the way you are, but God loves you so much that he doesn't want want you to stay the way that you are. But we don't always talk about that in the church because it jumps on people's toes. Transformation requires cooperation on our part. It requires effort. We don't just end up as someone different. There's work on our part. We have to cooperate with God. In America, see, we've got this constant diet that we're being fed that just kind of wants to level the playing field and, and make everybody a bunch of mediocre mediocrity. Things like look out for number one. Don't don't worry about the people around you. Look out for yourself. They can handle their own. They can take care of themselves. You look out for you. The idea that we are good enough just the way we are. And then we go perfectly. We say, you know what? You're perfect. Just the way you are. You're exactly the way God made you. You just keep being you. You do you. Well, You know what? Going back to what I said a moment ago, God loves you just the way you are. But God also sent Jesus that you don't stay the way you are. And now if you don't know Lady Gaga, count your blessings. If you do, her way of talking about it is this. She says, hey, after all, you were born this way. It's just the way you are. You were born this way. Which logically, in my mind, culminates to one of the greatest quotes in the last hundred years. And I said that I was going to leave this lady alone, but I couldn't. I'm going to quote Oprah for you. You take this whole line of thinking that we're given in America, this, this whole way of you're good enough and you're perfect just the way you are, and there's really no sins, there's just mistakes, and you learn from them anyway, so it's all good. And, and here's what it amounts to. Here's what Oprah said. And, and there's a, an interesting book called The Gospel of Oprah, which she, in, as it turns out, doesn't refute. See, this Gospel of Oprah that America has taken to heart, and so I checked this, and I double-checked it, and I triple-checked it to make sure she really said it. Here's the quote. My mind is part of God's. I am very holy. My holiness is my salvation. I am my own salvation. Let me remember there is no sin. That belief that has taken over America is what we're combating in this church. The world would want you to believe that that's a true statement. Oprah has a media giant behind her getting that information out. But you know what isn't true? See, the hard truth is the churches have a responsibility to teach the truth of Jesus. We have a responsibility to teach the truth the way the Bible presents it to us. And so one of the things that churches do to, to get this message across and not ruffle feathers is churches teach that we receive salvation By doing nothing more than being baptized. Now, it might be that you're an infant who can do nothing more than than utter a cry. It could be that you're an adult who professes faith in Jesus. But what a lot of churches have started to teach today, that baptism alone is the reason for your salvation. If you're baptized, you go to heaven. It does not say that in Scripture. In fact, Scripture speaks very much differently than that. The Bible talks about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And so often churches don't preach how to work out our salvation, that there's effort on our part. We're not saved because we're baptized. We're saved because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Too many churches don't speak clearly on the expectation that God has of us as a new creation. Yes, we're still going to sin. That's a part of being a human. But you know what? There should be a different version of us once we come to know Jesus as our Savior. And the word repentance begins to take hold in our life. When we understand that we've been bought with the blood of Jesus and that our sins have been forgiven, we should be understanding Scripture and our life in a very different way. But what ends up happening, because churches don't always preach that, we end up believing Oprah because sometimes she's just more passionate. We believe Lady Gaga and a a host of celebrities and politicians and and self-appointed, save-yourself people out there that preach right about and plaster it over the airwaves. But here's the thing, you can't be a Bible teaching church and believe that. And so we're not going to be that kind of church. We're not going to be the kind of church that just goes along with whatever the world says is good enough. And, and, and so that being said, I know that I stand before you as a sinner, that the song Amazing Grace, Grace talks about the wretch. That's me. But what I've learned in my life is that I'm in good company because there's a lot of other really good Christians who understand that they're a sinner and that without the grace of Jesus, that we're forgiven only by my belief in Jesus and by your belief in Jesus and in his death and his resurrection for the sake of our salvation, it's only in him that we have life. Or forgiveness or hope. It's only in him that we have salvation. My salvation, if you believe in Jesus, your salvation is in Jesus. That's the only salvation in the universe. I'm sorry, Oprah, you're going to face a day when you're going to find out that your belief in yourself isn't enough. You're going to find out that when, when you told all of those people that you are your own salvation, you're going to be accountable. The gospel says you are going to be accountable for that word. I'm telling you, the only salvation in the universe that you would ever want to put your hope in is in Jesus. So this morning, do you know that you're saved by Jesus? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Are you living as a new creation who's been transformed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Or do you, do you still live like the old you? Do, you? do you say, okay, I'm secure in my salvation because I know I'm going to heaven. But I'm still, I'm still very comfortable living in my sin. And the church doesn't always... Talk about the difference between those two. So where are you today? Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Is he your salvation? Is he your hope? Or do you line up more with Oprah thinking that you're your own salvation and if you try hard enough, you're going to be just fine? Verse 4, with respect to this, Peter says, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter knew the quickest way to get a believer to turn from what we believe is to get them to join and embrace the sins of the world. And if we don't choose to join and embrace the sins of the world, what the world does is they mock us, they make fun of us. The enemy of God lies to us and and has people slander us and try to make us feel foolish or embarrassed for believing what we believe. But the good news of the good news is that we know that Jesus is the truth. In fact, the Bible says he's the way, the truth, and the life. The good news of the good news is that Jesus is real. Verse five, but they'll give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God's going to take care of those people according to his purposes. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to validate yourself. You don't need to to make sure that people know that you were right and that they lied about you. See, the thing is, if you're trying to make that argument to non-believers, they're not going to believe you anyway. And so we leave that to God, Peter says. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. He wrote this 2,000 years ago, reading it and saying, the end of things are at hand today. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We know the truth of God. We know the good news of Jesus, and we're called. We are expected as a new creation then to live a life that is self-controlled and sober-minded. If we, want to hear, if we want God to hear our prayers, start there. Live a life of self-control and be sober-minded. Remember, we are to be holy, Peter said, because God is holy. We're not holy because we're holy. We're holy because God is holy. Now, Peter moves on then to what we should be doing. He, he's given the cautions. Here's what the world says. Here's what you need to be careful of, not of what we should be doing. Verse 8, above all, keep loving, another, loving one another earnestly, Since love covers a multitude of sins. If you're ever at a loss for someone who is angry to you, is mean to you, is lying about you, is slandering you, is maligning you, the way the Bible says. If you're at a loss for how to deal with someone like that, love them. They can't counteract that. They can't fight you loving them. What's the best thing that we can do is love them because love covers a multitude of sins. I heard this said once, and this is a tough one because... We don't want to believe that it's true. We like to make make excuses and reasons for ourselves. Now, be clear, this isn't a verse from the Bible, but this is me wrapping up a lot of the Bible's teaching on love, okay? I heard it said once that you can't love Jesus any more than you love the person you like the least. You can't love someone else any more than you love the person you like the least. And we like to think there's people who don't deserve our love. But you can't love the person you love the most any more than you love the person you like the least. That puts a high priority on Christian love. Then he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be kind, be welcoming, be generous. Show the love of Jesus in all you do for each other. One of the things that I love hearing about our church when I hear from people outside who have visited, they say, you guys are so friendly. And I say, thank you. And then I think, why is that a question? It's the church. We should be the friendliest place in the world. We're showing the love of Jesus, right? Show hospitality. Be welcoming. Be kind and do it without grumbling. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good steward of God's very grace. You'll notice today the addition to our platform is a bunch of gifts. Grace and service and hospitality and love. All of those gifts are coming from the same place. Everything you have. Everything, whether it's a thing or an idea or a passion or or finances or a possession, everything that you have, the Bible says, is a gift from God. And you have been trusted with those things as the steward and the caretaker. All of these gifts, everything that you have, anything you can imagine, everything you've bought, everything you've been given, everything you've used, the money that you have earned to purchase, all of it is only temporarily yours. You are a steward. You are a caretaker. Because at the end of your life, it is going to get transferred either to a dump somewhere or to someone else. You are only a temporary caretaker. And gifts, this is why all the gifts are made of colored in gold up here. Gifts all come from the same place. They all come from God, right? So you've been given things and abilities. You've been given finances and spiritual gifts and passions. You've been given ideas, and it's all from God, and it's all for God. All of those things, they're the working capital that God has given you to live the life that he has created you to live. So if you're going to dig deep and be honest with yourself for a moment, take a quick inventory of everything that you have. Your intelligence, your employment, your home, your property, your finances. Take a quick inventory of everything that you have. Are you using those gifts to advance your kingdom here on earth? Or are you using them to invest in the kingdom of God here on earth? I told you, you've got to decide who are you going to live like. Are you going to try to live your life being more like Jesus? or Are you going to be live, live your life being more like you? So many of us take all those gifts that come from God and we'll acknowledge, thank you, God, I, I realize they come from you, and all that we do with them is build our own kingdom. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, speaks the word of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. There it is. The answer to the age old question of the meaning of life. It was there. Maybe you didn't hear it. We exist in order that God might be glorified through Jesus in us. We exist that God might be glorified through Jesus in us. So, all of those things that we're given, they're not to elevate our position in the world. They're to shine the light on the love of God. Every moment of our lives should bring glory to God and advance the name of Jesus. Unfortunately, in our sin and in our selfishness, we hold on to what we believe is our right to our stuff. I earned the money, I did the work. I had to make the hard decisions. I gave up what I really wanted for a long time. This is mine. Well, it might be in your hands for the moment, but it's only passing through for a short amount of time. Everything you have, no matter how you came to possess it, is a gift from God. And then we go further and we cling to the right to be offended and and we find a million ways to rebel against God because we get angry. We don't always show in our words And we don't always show in the way that we live our lives that we live to give glory to God. It's why the world around us calls Christians hypocrites. We say one thing and we do another. So we've got this throne up here. It's been here for a few weeks. It's a reminder to us as we go through this series that God rightfully sits on his throne in heaven. Jesus was called a king. As God sits on his throne in heaven through Jesus, he is loved to us. God is righteous and merciful and loving and and the colors up here, uh, here and up above all speak to the same thing. Some of you come from uh, church backgrounds, maybe as a kid, maybe uh, recently as an adult that were more liturgical churches. They follow liturgical calendar of the year and the purple and the red and the white all mean very different things to you. That isn't the connection we're trying to make here. This is the purple that you see. That's the color of royalty. That's to remind us that that we're the child of a king. Talks about being a royal priesthood. There is royalty in us, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. The white reminds us of the holiness of God and the hope that we have in Jesus. And the red, the red is a reminder that we have our hope because of the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross, that our sins could be forgiven and that he might be our salvation. Verse 12 Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean your life's gonna get easy and trouble's gonna go away. In fact, if you were here and listened to Dr. Volsey last week and he said, pray radical prayers, pray crazy out-of-the-box prayers, challenge God to answer radical prayers. And he said, When you do that, you're gonna find yourself living in the will of God, and you're gonna find yourself opposed by the enemy of God. Those trials are going to come. You're going to go on the radar screen of the enemy of God because you're asking God to do great things in and with and through you. The enemy of God doesn't want that to happen. He wants us to be just muddled down mediocrity in the world. Verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is really cool because we know when we started this summer, the Beatitudes all the way back in the beginning of the summer, and then we went through the Sermon on the Mount. We know Peter was there with Jesus when Jesus delivered the Beatitudes to the disciples. Then the crowd started gathering, and the Sermon on the Mount, like we said, was, the, was basically the sermon that he preached to those people. That verse proves Peter was listening. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because what did Jesus say? Blessed are you When? Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I love that verse. I love the words that Peter chose to use. I looked them up in the original Greek, and this is a really good translation. Here's why I love them. None of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That isn't suffering for Christ. If you suffer because of any of those things, you're paying the price for your own selfishness. But that last word, meddler, evildoer, murderer, thief. We would all say those are bad people, right? We don't want to be those people. Those are bad people. And then that last word, meddler. Peter just cast a, a net over all of us. The fishermen cast a net over all of us because all of us have been a meddler. It's a silly word when you look at it. But it covers a lot of ground because, you know, you can meddle in somebody else's business. You can meddle in the judgment and condemnation of the sins you see in somebody else's life. You can meddle in how it is that they live. Or you can meddle in, in, in thinking about how it is that they spend their money. See, Peter lumps all of those things into the word meddling. Those things that we think that we have a right to do. And he calls them meddling. And he connects that sin to the sin of murdering and being a thief and being an evildoer. When we meddle in someone else's life, We're just lumped in with all those people that we would all say we never want to be. I think Peter is doing that as a a weight of conviction for all of us that this word is for every one of us. We don't have an excuse for a misbehavior. Remember, every once in a while you'll hear someone say, well, he was a martyr or she was a martyr. It isn't the suffering that makes you a martyr. It's the willingness to die for a cause that makes you a martyr. Most of us have a hard time actually talking about Jesus in public, much less being a martyr for him. Suffering because of our sin is not righteous suffering at all. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you're unjustly accused because of Jesus, if you're mistreated For being an outspoken believer in Jesus at work or at school or with your friends or with the guys or with the ladies, if they make fun of you because you're speaking out loud about Jesus, if you're punished for your faith or mocked or ridiculed or maybe you've been fired for being a disciple of Jesus, Peter says then do not be ashamed. Accept that treatment as an honor and a privilege. Let your suffering and how you stand up in the midst of it give glory to God. Because what the world doesn't understand is them throwing their best shot at you to make fun of you. And you just loving them back all the more. That message gives glory to God. It doesn't give glory to us. See, we should want to try to be different from the world around us. We should try to look different than the world around us. If we do, we shine a light on the false teachings and the sin that surrounds us. A lot of statements of Oprah and a lot of other people, they make sense when you just take them on their own. It's like, yeah, I can make that change. And so we get good Christians that follow all kinds of crazy religious ideas and theological ideas and power of positive thinking ideas and all kinds of stuff because it makes sense. But when you hold it to the light of Scripture, does it still make sense? See, Oprah sounds convincing, Until you realize what she's really doing is saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm my own Jesus. And so much of what the world says is you don't need Jesus. He's probably not real anyway. But the good news of the good news is that Jesus is real. And when you hold all of that stuff to the light of the gospel, it simply can't stand up to it. And so we should not be ashamed, but rather we should be thankful that God might be glorified through us. So what are you going to do? What are you going to believe? Who are you going to be? How are you going to live? What are your friends and family members and the people that you work with? What are they going to know about you? Would they ever have a reason to make fun of you because you believe in Jesus? Would they ever have a reason to say something negative because you stood up for Jesus? we got one more week of First Peter, and then we're going to start a, a sermon series on the seven commands of Christ. The purpose of it really going into Christmas this year Is where do I begin to live as a disciple of Jesus? Peter is doing the hard work of drawing the comparison between us and the world. And maybe you come out of this one you say, okay, I'm willing to I'm willing to start, I'm willing to do something, I'm willing to cooperate in my transformation. Remember, transformation requires cooperation. So we're going to do a seven week sermon series called the Seven Commands of Christ. It's a where do I begin? For people that are ready to start living as a disciple of Jesus, and and Pastor Jeff has created a study guide for us. It's a little booklet. We're going to use that, and and I hope everybody gets one. That you go through and make it a part of your devotions, make it a part of conversations, make it a part of learning and growing and understanding. And then if you're really ready to go deep and and really get serious and you say, you know what, I'm really ready to do the heavy, heavy lifting now. We're going to start a class starting Wednesday night called Making Change. It'll be right here at 6 p.m. Maybe you realize that this is the time for you to stop blaming and to start accepting responsibility for whatever it is that's going on in your world and saying, God, what is it that you want from me? What is this transformation that you talk about? What does the new creation look like? So where does all of it come together for us? Well, as a follower of Jesus... You are a member of God's family. You have taken on a new name. You are now called a Christian, a Christ follower. It means that you're part of a royal priesthood. It means that the one who gave his life for you is a king. It means that God expects something of us in the way that we live because when we accept the name Christian, we become an ambassador for Christ's kingdom. So I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you to live the moments of your life as a disciple of Jesus in order to give glory, glory to God. I'm not challenging you to live your life as a disciple of Jesus to impress people with how holy you are. I'm not challenging you to impress people with how much you know the Bible. I'm challenging you to live your life in love in such a way that what you do doesn't make sense to the world around you and the only thing that they can do is to give glory to God. And if you happen to be here today or if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, if you've not been transformed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus for your salvation, if salvation is a word that, that you still think you've got to earn on your own. We've got people in the corners and, and we've got people in the back. We've got pastors here. Any one of us would love the opportunity to pray with you. It would be a privilege to pray with you if you said, you know, this is the time That I'm ready to begin the transformation of my life. I'm ready to lay down my life and I'm ready to give it to Jesus. That's what it is to become a Christian is just simply to say, Jesus, I submit my life to you. I take my will and I set it aside and I want to follow your will for my life. But here's the thing. So many people I talk to get to that edge. They get right up to that fence and they say, I'm not quite ready. I still kind of like living as the old me. I'm not really sure what I'm going to have to give up. I'm not really sure what it's going to look like or feel like. I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. Here's the thing. You're counting on something that you don't really have a a reason to count on. You're counting on having another day. You're counting on having another week or another month or another year. Maybe the reason that you're here today, maybe the reason that God brought you into this place or has you watching online is because today is your day. Maybe you don't have tomorrow. Maybe you don't have next week. And what God wants more than anything for all of us to come to the saving knowledge of the truth of Jesus Understanding that he gave his life so that we wouldn't lose ours, that our salvation is only in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, who are you going to be? How are you going to live? Who are you going to live for? Let's pray. God, thank you that uh, Peter knew Jesus so well. He, he knew, uh, he literally knew how to, to pick up where Jesus left his teaching off. Peter's words aren't easy, they're challenging, they're difficult, they're direct. They're they're toe-stomping words if we really listen to them. But we can hear in his heart that what he wants us to do is to know Jesus. He wants us to be and to live as disciples, as people who are no longer the, the old creation who we were before we heard of Jesus, but as the new creation, as the transformed people who have met Jesus and who have accepted him as our Lord and Savior. God, baptism is one of those things you call us to do when we put our faith in your Son. But it isn't in that act any more than in taking Holy Communion that we're saved. Those are things that we do out of obedience to you. God, we're saved by calling on the name of Jesus, his death and his resurrection for our salvation and putting our faith and hope and trust in him. God, I pray in that power of your Holy Spirit that for anyone who might be here, anyone who might be listening that doesn't know that their salvation is secure because of Jesus, God, that you would move in their heart and that they would take that step. For all those who do know that their salvation is secure, God, then I pray that the next step would be that we live lives that give glory and honor to you, that we begin to live truly as disciples of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.